Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. By the time Sandy came ashore in southern New Jersey 10 years ago, it wasn't even a hurricane, but what it was was massive. Oh, you better believe it. Listen, I'm soaking wet right now. I actually made my way back to Spring Lake, uh, and I can tell you on the south side of Spring Lake, the ocean is under the boardwalk. Uh, If this is just the beginning, I don't even want to know what's coming next with the, the next high tide tonight. At its greatest, Sandy was 900 miles across. Think about that. Chicago is 700 miles from New York City. Sandy was 900 miles in diameter. Sandy was big and powerful. It also helped create a new term in the lexicon of weather reporting, superstorm. It was the combination of almost like putting a nor'easter and a hurricane together. Craig Allen, they're about to uh, make you leave the weather center because of rising waters. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think we're going to turn it over to Todd Glickman for, for, for my safety in this case and, and, and the families too, because the water is now coming up over into the roadways. And if high tide is still three hours away, uh, I don't think it's going to be a very, very good scene. This week on 880 In-Depth, a look back at Sandy with an eye on preparing for the storms of the future. We're seeing stronger storms, more rapid intensification, storms staying at higher categories longer, and more extreme rainfall events. Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Michael Wallace. Craig Fugate was the FEMA administrator back in 2012 when Sandy hit. You will hear him talk about Sandy's destructive power, its incredible storm surge, and the unthinkable damage it caused to homes and infrastructure. You'll also hear more on the longer conversation about how and where we are building today to guard against storms of the future. Are we ready? Can we be better prepared? But first, let's hear from another Craig. Craig Allen, the veteran WCBS meteorologist, one of New York's most trusted weather voices. He sat down for a conversation with our Tim Sheld about what made Sandy so potent. It was a combination of things here. Yes, there was wind that was at hurricane force, just about hurricane force. Sandy was already beginning to weaken and uh, almost down to tropical storm status. So the wind was approximately 75 to 80 miles per hour sustained. And we had gusts of 90 miles per hour in the forward right quadrant of the storm. And that was headed towards the Jersey Shore and across Long Island. There were gusts, uh, several places that recorded gusts up to about 90 miles per hour or so. But at the same time, this was pushing in water for two, three days ahead of it. 
And then Sandy made that famous left-hand turn towards the uh, New Jersey shore, which is rarely ever seen for a tropical system. So in other words, you've got the storm, Sandy as a Category 3, coming up the Florida coastline off the southeast coast and heading on out to sea like so many do, and then hit oh, about the uh, the lower Jersey, Delaware latitude, and then just made a left-hand turn, sharp left-hand turn at that, and came right ashore. So now you've taken all that water that it was pushing up ahead of it and pushed it on shore. At the same time that this devastating storm surge was occurring and being pushed into the coastline, we were also in full moon, and so that made the tides a little bit higher naturally anyway. It's an incredible sight. There is a raging river pouring down the approach ramp to the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. It looks like a waterfall coming from several directions. There are white caps running along this, this raging river that is several feet deep. Unbelievable. So that occurring full moon and at high tide, so you already had the highest water there, made this a devastating storm for the coastal areas, uh, more so coastal areas than the inland areas, because while wind was a factor and took down thousands upon thousands of trees, this also was a storm that uh, was uh, more devastating with its storm surge and in some cases freshwater flooding, more so for New Jersey with the freshwater flooding. We call it a superstorm. Yes. Uh, that was pretty accurate, right? Definitely. And it was given the name Superstorm because there was, at that time, uh, a little more than a decade ago, they were trying to figure out what's the best way to handle a tropical system that was transitioning down to non tropical. And I will try to be very simple in explaining that. As Sandy was getting up to our latitude, the water was getting colder. And it wasn't as warm, obviously, as it was off the Florida coastline. So Sandy was weakening somewhat and losing the warm core, that that eye. It's usually filled with warm, moist air. Well, that wasn't happening anymore. So Sandy wasn't completely a tropical system by that time. It was more of a hybrid type system. And the Hurricane Center wasn't quite sure, what do we call it? Do we pass this off, this information off to the local National Weather Services, which they did. And so there was some confusion there, unfortunately, as well. But what happened was, is you had what what's technically known as an extra tropical system. In other words, it's beyond tropical now. It's out of that range. And it is acquiring characteristics of a nor'easter. So what do we do? Well, I could tell you that what happens physically in the atmosphere is the storm explodes. In other words, it was the combination of almost like putting a nor'easter and a hurricane together. And your storm system grows and grows and the wind field expanded out for over 200 miles in all directions rather than the compact size that Sandy was while it was first moving up the coast. And you enhanced the area of hurricane force winds. You enhanced the area where there was tidal flooding and the rainfall too. And so now you had yourself an explosive sort of tropical system, if you can understand that. And therefore, the uh, the name Superstorm was applied to this because, you know, it's, it's a little bit easier and a little, uh, I guess what the word would be is sexier than saying this is an extra tropical, post-tropical cyclone that's moving into our area. People didn't understand that very well. So calling it a Superstorm or Hurricane Sandy certainly fits the bill.
Craig Fugate knew all about hurricanes and powerful storms from his time working as an emergency manager in the state of Florida. He became the FEMA administrator in 2010. FEMA is the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the arm of the U.S. government that prepares for and deals with the aftermath of America's natural disasters. Fugate spoke to our Peter Haskell for our look back at Hurricane Sandy. Going back 10 years, what did we expect from Sandy, and, and did it exceed the planning that was done? Well, Superstorm Sandy was originally a hurricane and was forecast to become post-tropical. And the impacts were, I think, well forecasted. But for the public, they went from a hurricane, and they'd gone through Hurricane Irene uh, earlier, you know, the year before. And they were thinking, well, it's not a hurricane, it won't be that bad. And we saw actually quite a bit more impact, uh, particularly with storm surge. And that resulted in the greatest number of loss of life. It also impacted uh, a lot of critical infrastructure, including the hospitals on Hospital Road down at Coney Island, and damages we hadn't seen with Irene. And so even though it wasn't a hurricane, technically, the impacts were actually much worse than that region had seen since probably 1935 uh, hurricanes. You know, I'm curious, you talk about the storm surge, which certainly in this area was different than other storms, but is a response to a storm or are storms different in the Northeast compared to the South? Not really. The The characteristics of the storms are usually a little different. They move faster as they move north. Uh, and the other thing that we tend to see with these storms as they move north is they become what they call asymmetrical, where you see the storms down south are all nice and round. Storms in the northeast look a lot of times more like gales, big uh, systems on one side, not much on the other side. But Superstorm Sandy was probably more um, hurricane-like as it was approaching the coast, and as it made its transition to a post-tropical, because there was not hurricane warnings up on the coast, I think for the public, they didn't perceive how dangerous it was going to be, even though the Weather Service was talking about, you know, extremely deadly storm surge and all of that. And since Superstorm Sandy, the National Hurricane Center has now changed their policy where once a storm becomes a hurricane, they will continue to issue products for that hurricane, even if it becomes post-tropical, to address that very issue. Looking at the aftermath of the storm, was it different in any way? And did, did, did FEMA, how did FEMA prepare for this, and how did it respond? Well, we were looking at, the, if you think about from the standpoint of hurricanes, this is the one part of the coast that's got the highest density, the most people living in areas that would be impacted. So I think one of our challenges was getting people to focus on the population density, not just the area. Uh, that, you know, what many people would say, well, it's only five miles. I would say, yeah, but five miles in lower Manhattan is a lot more people than five miles on the coast of Florida. And so it's getting people to understand that we were responding to a much more dense population. They had correspondingly, however, much more rescue and law enforcement and EMS than you would in a lot of places. So it was less about we were going to have to respond to the rescues as much as the impacts and mass care issues and the 
the things that we saw, like with the flooding in the subways and the hospitals and the electrical grid, were going to be what FEMA needed to focus on. And so it was really, you know, extra generators, very big generators. We needed to get those moving early. We couldn't wait until the storm hit to start looking for that stuff. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all-star closer kenley jansen we have a question what's the best podcast of all time Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod. There is another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. How has disaster preparedness changed in the past 10 years? And basically, what have we learned since Sunday? Well, I think one is is communicating uh, impacts of these storms. And we've even seen this challenge most recently in Florida with Hurricane Ian, is the most deadly part of these storms is water. It's death by drowning. And getting people to understand that risk, understand that they're in those areas, getting them to move to higher ground, is um, the challenge. And so it's, again, for this region, uh, look at Staten Island. Many of these people lived there all their lives. They'd never seen this kind of flooding. And that's where we lost lives, uh, primarily due to drowning, and the impacts on the infrastructure. So post-Sandy, more work has been done to harden the infrastructure against the storm surge to look at those types of impacts and to make decisions about where to locate critical equipment. Again, uh, much of the uh, the area that was impacted on Hospital Row uh, 
in the lower floors of the hospitals below grounds where they kept a lot of the critical equipment for a variety of reasons, but, you know, CAT scanners, X-ray machines, nuclear medicine, the generators, the electrical systems, and they were all flooded with salt water. And so it compounded the damages of where historically equipment had been located and decisions had to be made when they were rebuilding. Do we keep stuff like that in the lower areas that may flood or do we put it up on higher floors and incur the cost of that shielding and additional uh, insulation for those facilities. You talk about a hardening infrastructure. So a couple of things. First, if you can explain exactly what that means. And the second thing is, are we doing enough to harden infrastructure? Well, part of this is elevation, uh, getting things higher than what we would expect to flood in these types of storms. Uh, and that's probably the most basic thing that could be done. We're not really able to move stuff out of the way as much as we can move up so it doesn't flood and we can get back in quicker. Uh, things like the electrical systems, uh, substations, uh, you know, if you look at so much of what is, is, is running in the, the Manhattan area uh, is underground, is looking at when those repairs were made, how you can seal that, potentially prevent future flooding, uh, you know, the subways. And so there's been various studies, there's been some things done, uh, but it's still, I think, a work in progress is both combating sea level rise, but also storm surge. How do you keep the salt water out of the underground systems in New York City? Today, Craig Fugate is Chief Resiliency Officer at an organization called One Concern. It's a company using machine learning to look at impacts of disasters, um, really trying to model this idea that uh, not just looking at impacts of natural hazards, but how they impact systems and the interconnectedness. Some of the stuff that we saw in Superstorm Sandy, if you remember, uh, power outages, uh, impacting fuel systems, impacting availability of gasoline. One of the things uh, I know you've said in the past is don't change standards based on past storms, but basically change them based, based on future storms. What do you mean by that? Well, when you think about, you know, where you were building and how you were building, when the flooding occurred in Superstorm Sandy, it was flooding places that had never flooded before. So when you go to build back, you want to make sure you're building back in a way that it will likely flood again in the future. We know with sea level rise, we're going to have increased their uh, risk there. But also, you know, we can see more tropical systems, more hurricanes impacting the region. So things like building back and where you put your generators. You know, a lot of times generators are in basements, uh, but they flooded. So, you know, putting generators higher up, elevated up maybe a story or two. Uh, looking at if you cannot prevent the flooding, can you minimize the flooding by making sure you're floodproofing buildings to keep as much water out as possible? You know, can you seal entrances into uh, the subways and other places, either through temporary measures or through, you know, re-engineering them so that they, their openings are higher than what you would see in these types of storms? So some of this is, you know, was done after Superstorm Sandy and rebuilding it. Some of it's still projects that are being considered of how do you protect the areas that are going to be at greatest risk from storm surge, either through you know relocating critical equipment up higher 
or perhaps putting in more barriers, you know, seawalls and other types of construction projects. You're talking about uh, structures and buildings and, and generators and elevators and things like that. But as we've seen in the other parts of the country, there are some places, even here, Long Island and the Jersey Shore, where they get a hit again and again and again. And this is true mostly in the South. Should we stop rebuilding in these places? Well, I think it's a, it's a balance. So I think in some places we need to build back different, higher. In other places, it may make sense to uh, provide more natural defenses. Uh, we've seen this on, on parts of you know, the coast where people are saying, instead of building right up onto the shore, what if we let more of the natural landscape absorb these storms and build back a little further back? Um, and in some places where you're just so dense, there's not really that option. You, you generally have to look at engineering solutions. But in other parts of the country, it may make more sense to provide more space for dunes and vegetation to absorb the storm impacts versus having the houses right there on the water. And again, a lot of people like to be on the water, but being back a little bit further from that minimizes those impacts, provides more natural space, and provides more public access to those to the shoreline. This is a discussion that's been happening, especially at the Jersey Shore and on Long Island. They generate big tourism dollars there. Some people say we need the tourism. Other people say you're fighting the tide, literally. How, how, do, we, how do we weigh these things? And, and can we protect these areas in a, in a way that they're safe? Well, this is a huge debate. The value of that land and what people will pay to be on the water um, actually is much greater than sometimes the, 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 the alternatives. And so when people look at that, they're going, well, if they're willing to pay that much money to live there and they understand the risk, um, you know, and you get the tax base and everything else, how do you say no? On the other hand, there's this tendency to think if you don't build back, you're losing. But we've seen in other parts of the country, we're not building back and putting in more parks and recreational on the shore actually adds value to the remaining property. But it's a case by case. You have to kind of look at this from, you know, some parts like in Connecticut, they were making some decisions about building back from right on the water uh, and doing more setbacks so that there was more shoreline, and that actually increases public space, actually increases the value of the remaining homes. But there's going to be winners and losers. And the losers you know, that are being told you can't rebuild here uh, is a very hard message to sell. On the other hand, where you, know, you can do that, adding more public space. And I, I think this is the thing when we say we're not going to rebuild, it just doesn't sit there. A lot of this will go back into more public space, more shore, more access, uh, but at the cost of that property that is not being rebuilt. Storm recovery costs billions of dollars every single storm. How does the cost of storm recovery compare to the cost of rebuilding resiliency or building resiliency? Well, let's put it this way. Um, in Florida, where I have most of my experiences, when you look at all the devastation of Hurricane Ian 
it tends to be the older homes that weren't built to the newer codes and newer standards. The newer construction did pretty good. Uh, it was damaged, but it's rebuildable and people can get back home pretty quick. Looking at what it costs to build resilience in the new construction, the Institute of Business and Home Safety, a uh, uh, think tank and research group for the insurance industry, has been looking at a lot of these things and they have a standard that is generally what you call above the minimum building codes or what they call code plus or fortified homes. They find that on average it's a three to 5% increase in new construction. And again, it's, it's a cost, but what we, we know is when you build the higher standards and higher code, those buildings and those homes generally do very well in the aftermath of the storms are quicker to be repaired and quicker for people to get back into them versus the total devastation. And so our option is really looking at new construction is to build to much higher standards. The harder question, what do we do with the existing housing stock and businesses that weren't built to those higher standards that are still vulnerable to these storms? And are there ways that we can go in and start thinking about either which is in some of these are very expensive options, elevations or other activities to reduce the impacts. And that is a harder question. But in general, what we know from our investments in reducing the impact storms, what the you know we call mitigation practices, on average for the dollars we invest in those projects, we see risk avoidance for every dollar invested of anywhere from six to nine dollars in risk avoidance. So it makes more sense to invest on the front end to mitigate these events than to pay out the disasters that we continue to see uh, occurring annually. For anybody who, who lives near the water, they understand about flood maps. Uh, based on the way things are changing and looking forward versus looking backwards, are, are, are there still value to these flood maps, or do they need to be rejiggered? Well, I think we need to understand what they are. They're flood insurance rate maps. They're not indicating what areas don't flood. They only indicate what the insurance costs are. So what many people call flood maps or flood zones are actually just insurance rate maps. And that's been a hard thing to communicate. The maps do not indicate that you don't have a flood risk. And too many people who don't have, you know, that aren't in one of those zones where you have to pay the higher rates, mistakenly think they don't live in a flood-prone area. And that's probably the hardest thing to explain to people that you have a risk of flooding in more places than are indicated on those maps. Those maps are about high-risk insurance requirements. But outside of those zones, it doesn't say it won't flood. It means the insurance is less expensive. But it doesn't mean you don't flood. And this is true what we recently saw in Hurricane Ian. Hundreds of families who did not live in what they thought was a flood zone, who were told you didn't have to buy flood insurance, and they assumed they had no flood risk now have uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of uninsured losses because they didn't have flood insurance. And so the thing that I, I try to emphasize over and over again, your best, fastest way to build resilience to the impacts of climate change from extreme rainfall events and coastal storm surge is to buy flood insurance because your homeowner's policy doesn't cover it. And a lot of people in Superstorm Sandy woke up to the grim reality that the 
flooding that they incurred, their insurance policies didn't cover because they didn't have flood insurance. And they said, but wait a minute, I was told I didn't live in a flood zone. And the problem with that is it's an insurance rate map. It's not a map telling you what will and will not flood. It just prices the insurance based upon the risk. How have these storms changed over the past 10 years? And what do you make about the conversation we're still having about climate change? Well, the, the, there's a lot of, you know, people look at these storms and they go, well, it's all climate change. The frequency of storms is not really been indicated that that's, a, that's tied to climate change. What has been documented and noted is we're seeing stronger storms, more rapid intensification, storms staying at higher categories longer, and more extreme rainfall events. And so that, you know, it isn't that we're seeing an increased number of storms per se, but the storms we are seeing, particularly over the last, you know, 20 years, we're seeing more intense storms. Uh, we're seeing more storms that are intensifying rapidly, uh, going from, you know, tropical storms and category one hurricanes up to category four and category five hurricanes. And they're staying at those higher intensities longer, but we're also seeing these extreme rainfall events. So while Ian was, you know, a lot of focus was on Southwest Florida where it came ashore as a category four hurricane, it dumped close to two feet of rain in the Orlando region and over in Daytona Beach, which caused tremendous flooding inland that wasn't even near the coast. And so, it again, shows that these storms' impacts are felt not just on the coastal communities, but well inland. And the thing that we see uh, more frequently are these intense rainfall events that are causing feet of rain uh, that are falling in areas that have never seen that kind of uh, flooding before. What should the government doing, be doing, federal government, state government, local government? Is there anything that can be done to try to deal with all of these issues? Well, it comes back to where and how we build. And we're seeing that communities that are adopting more stringent building codes, uh, that are looking at where they're building and how they're building, uh, are doing better. There was a planned community that was built in Florida, uh, Badcock Ranch, that was actually, you know, a lot of thought went into uh, the solar system, the, how the homes were built, the drainage systems for extreme rainfall events, and they went through the impacts of Hurricane Ian with very little damages. Uh, so how and where we build can reduce those impacts, but it means that local and state governments have to think hard about the building codes, uh, the zoning, and how and where they allow the construction to take place and preserving as much you know natural space as they can to provide buffers to these impacts. And the federal government's got to, you know, again, it, it comes back to provide the immediate relief in the aftermath of the hurricanes, but then make the decision that we're going to have to invest in rebuilding, not to build it back the way it was where it will get destroyed again, but to spend more money to build it back for the future risk and not just look backwards at what has happened before as what our designs and standards should be based upon. Last word goes to former FEMA director Craig Fugate as he looks to the future of these more powerful storms we're seeing. When you look forward, what, what are your biggest concerns? What are, you, what are you most worried about? 
Well, the thing that I'm concerned about is um, the resiliency divide that, you know, we keep talking about we're going to invest in resiliency, but the reality is if you look at where the money goes and how it's spent, it tends to go to more affluent communities. It tends to go to communities that have more resources to manage that. We're leaving behind our smaller communities. Uh, we're leaving behind uh, our more vulnerable populations. Uh, if you look at deaths both from Superstorm Sandy, but also from more recently Hurricane Ian and other storms, uh, the elderly and people with disabilities are the most vulnerable to you know the life-threatening impacts of that. Um, and I think we need to really make sure that when we're focusing on rebuilding, that we're not just putting emphasis on the stuff, but we're putting emphasis on the people and in particular vulnerable populations. Um, the elderly are dying at a much higher rate in these disasters than the general population. People with disabilities die at a much higher rate than the general population. So it's not only you know where and how we build, but it's also the social vulnerabilities that we have to incorporate into where we make our investments to buy down our future risk. It just can't be on the most valuable properties. It has to be also you know factored in the most vulnerable populations. Kurt, before I let you go, is there anything else that you want to add? Anything we should have touched upon that we didn't? You know, when you talk about disasters, you talk about you know getting prepared and everything, and, and all the steps we take, we make it very complex. Um, I think the the thing that the public needs to be thinking about is just um, you know start with the very basic stuff: having a good family communication plan, making sure you can reach everybody in crisis. These are lessons we learned back in 9/11, and we reinforced the Superstorm Sandy. It comes up time and time again um, when people have to evacuate. Things happen suddenly. We can't get hold of each other. We don't know where people went. We don't know what they were planning to do. Uh, we we then have that long delay before we can reunite with family members. So. Start with the basics. Just make sure you have a good plan on how you're going to reach each other, what happens if the cell phones are busy, and focus on the stuff you can do right now. It doesn't cost any money. It just takes a little time, but work on a family communication plan is your first step because disasters aren't slowing down, and um, we need to do a better job of making sure that we can check on each other and make sure everybody's okay in the aftermath. Craig, really interesting stuff. I thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Superstorm Sandy caused 147 deaths, 72 of them in the United States. An estimated 8.5 million people lost power as a result of the storm. It is still one of the costliest in U.S. history with upwards of $70 billion in damages. That's 880 In-Depth for this week. Our thanks to Craig Allen and Craig Fugate for their expertise and for the work they both do in keeping us safe and informed. The executive producers of In-Depth are Peter Haskell and Tim Scheld. I'm Michael Wallace. Thank you for listening.
all-star closer, Kenley Jansen. We have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod. There is another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.